Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, but Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord, Cain, Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of God. Uh, the book of Genesis means beginnings. One of the things about the book is the book of Genesis gives us a proper perspective on the human condition, what it is. And so we're going to be introducing a practical way of viewing creation and sin and fall and redemption. And this text, this particular text, explains to us the deep-rooted nuances of our sin. Now, the modern world hates the word sin. The modern world doesn't use the word sin. They believe the primitive word. But after centuries and centuries, a century of postmodernism for that matter, there's no better way and scholars and commentators are starting to come around to this in some way, shape, or form. There's no better way to explain evil, the oppression, even the horrors of this past century. There are three things we're going to learn today. The hiddenness of sin, the power of sin, and our victory over sin. Hiddenness, power, victory. Okay, we're going to look at first the hiddenness of sin. Verse 7, God says, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Now, you see, Cain and Abel, growing up, I was taught Cain's the bad guy, Abel's the good guy. But if you think about it, Cain and Abel on the outside, they were very similar people. And you, if you look at it that way, it changes the whole perspective on the book, on this passage. Cain and Abel on the outside were similar people. They were both trying to obey God. They both gave offerings. They both worshipped. Both of them appeared to have relationships with God. Cain's talking to God. 
In fact, you see Cain having more of a conversation with God than Abel does in this passage. Both of them on the outside appear to be okay, but something is happening inside Cain. This is not a narrative where one person is living a very debaucherous, wild life, hurting people, everything in his path, while the other person is living a very godly life, trying to save people. It's much more nuanced than that. The only difference between those two brothers is that Cain was a farmer and Abel was a shepherd. Abel was a herder. That's the only difference. Both of them offered their incomes to God, but God chose to bless Abel, and he didn't favor Cain. Now, why? It makes it more nuanced. If you think about it, this is an agrarian society that we're talking about. They didn't have bank accounts. They didn't exchange currencies the way we exchange currencies. In an agrarian society, your wealth was based on what you grew or what you raised. And so your capital, your wealth, your income, it was based on the growth and the prosperity of the growth of your crops or the birth, the prosperity of the birthing of new animals. So you have to think about this. If you had 10 animals born... In that year, 10 new animals born, you gave one animal, one of those animals. That was your tithe, in a way. That was your tithe. But the text here says this. It says, Cain gave from his crops. One of the ways that you can tithe is to take a look at all the things that you've grown, either in the past week, all the things that you've done in the past year, right? And you give 10% of what you raised, right? That's what Cain was doing. But but the text here says Abel gave from his firstborn. Abel gave his firstborn. Now, you have to think about this. If you give from your firstborn, the firstborn of what you raise, that means regardless what the rest of the year looks like, right, the proportion of your giving could be very, very disproportionate in, in a sense. It's one thing to take an inventory of everything that you have and say, you know, I'm going to give this amount. Right? Many of us do that. But Abel did something very different. If you only have two animals raised that year and you give your firstborn, you gave 50% of your income. You see that? You're giving out of dependence. You're giving out of trust. Now, some of us are very shrewd with God. You're a shrewd businessman. You do cost business, cost uh, uh, benefit analyses. You're very shrewd and you're calculating. You take what you've done and you give 10% and you try to uh, figure out, is it net, is it gross? And you try to figure out, how much should I get? And you can tell people who are very shrewd with God, right, even if they're not doing that, by where they spend their money, how they spend their money, how they spend their time, where they spend their time, how they talk about how they spend their money, how they talk about what they spend their time and money on, how they regard what's being asked of them. Do they grumble or are they grateful? You see, while there is a type of person who gives and they give out of anxiety and they give out of grumbling because they believe they've earned this money, they worked hard for this money, they don't even have that much of it, and so they're going to clench their fists and hold on to what they've got. 
And when they give, they give very reluctantly. They give, they, they sigh. It's a heavy sigh. It's a sigh of exasperation. It's a sigh of complaining. And, and more is being asked of them at times, and they say, but I give, and now I've got to give more? You see, that's how it works. And then there's a type of giving where people give out of joy, out of gratitude, because they trust, out of abandon. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews in chapter 11 says, Abel gave a better sacrifice by faith. What does that mean? Cain had faith in God. Cain's actually praying to God. He's talking with God in this passage, right? That's what he's doing. But Abel gave by faith, the author says, because he trusted God. He trusted God's promises. He trusted God's covenant promise over him. He had a relationship with God. He was, what is faith? Faith is not living in line with what you don't know, right? We think of faith as leaps, living in line with what you don't know. Abel was living in line with what he knew. And what he knew about God, what he knew about his promises, was enough to give birth to gratitude and joy and priority priority and trust. Now think. The reason why anybody here would give is either because, or at least why you should give, is either because you're giving in response to a promise of salvation, or probably what we shouldn't do is you're giving as a means of salvation or a means to salvation. Either because you're thankful for God's love or because you're trying to earn it. Either because you're accepted by God or because you're trying to be approved by God. And depending on where you fall in those two categories, there's serious implications. Cain, he worked hard to earn these crops. And so when he gave, he felt like he deserved it. It made him entitled. And when you give like that, it makes you more resentful. It makes you more anxious. It makes you uh, proud. It makes you angry when you give. But Abel, he gave out of gratitude. So when he gave, he gave loosely. He gave freely. It made him humbler. It still hurt. I mean, we don't know if he's giving 10% or 50%. We don't know if it's 100%. But it made him, so it made him humbler. Both of these men, Cain and Abel, both of, these men, both of these brothers, they're doing what God wants. Both of them are obeying. But where is each person's foundational trust in their heart being placed? In other words, what is their motivational center? What is the thing, the center, the core of, of what they believe that motivates them to do what they do? God blessed Abel. That means that he had a relationship with Abel. And Cain was jealous. Cain is jealous. He felt like he deserved a blessing. Why do we get jealous? Why is there jealousy in our lives? Why do we get angry when other people seemingly get ahead of us? Because your answer to that question reveals what you love, what you depend on. Cain's, they always hate Abel's. Why? Cain's say, I worked hard. I try hard. I honor God, don't I? Don't I worship God? I give. I give and I give and I give. When people like Cain see other people getting blessed ahead of them, what happens? They get angry. They get so angry. Why? Because their obedience is contingent on them being fulfilled because they give. Their obedience is contingent on their fulfillment based on what they give. There are people here in this room, undoubtedly, 
When you look at this context, undoubtedly there are people here in this room who want to experience the thrill of being a Christian, the joy of being a Christian, the richness of being in Christ, the richness of Christian community, the benefits of the church, and yet they haven't given themselves wholly in faith. They hide from, being, uh, from, the, from the call of being a Christian. They hide from the call of being set apart from God. And it's these very people who are a cancer, actually, oftentimes in the church, because they grow up in the church. They look the part. They act the part. They speak the part. They pray the part. Many of them may be standing here, right? And yet, when they look at Abel's, they compare themselves with Abel's. They feel themselves to be superior to their Abel's and yet are being treated as if they're inferior. And as a result, they get angry and they're resentful. What does one, verses 1 to 6 tell you about sin? Sin is deeply rooted. So deeply rooted. When you hide something in your heart, what happens? It's a secret. Sin is a secret. It is subtle. It is under the skin. It is subterranean. Sin is so subterranean, you don't realize the impact that your deep-rooted sin has on you, but it distorts even the good things that you do. Your motivations, your core motivations are very, very deep. Sin is secret, it's hidden. But God tells Cain, verse 7, he says what? Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. He says, sin is crouching. You know what that is? It's the image of an animal, a predator, in the shadow, waiting as you're walking by, ready to jump on you. That's what he's trying to do. You're not suspecting it. He's crouching and ready to pounce. In other words, sin is subtle. Sin is hidden, but it's deadly. It's deadly. It's deadly because it's hidden. It's deadly because you can't see it. It's deadly because you are in the dark about it. God says to Cain, you must master it. Sin is like a tumor. What is a tumor? It begins undetectable. You can't see it. There are no ramifications. There's no implications. It's unrecognizable at first. But if you don't diagnose it, if you don't address it, it just starts to grow. And it grows and grows and grows. And if you ignore the symptoms, it continues to grow eventually until what? It consumes you, and then it destroys you. Sometimes sin presents itself as something good. That's the hard part. It is so subterranean, it is so hidden, that oftentimes it lies at the core of even the good things that we try to present ourselves to be. Now, how do you apply that in our lives? One don't just rationalize. Don't just justify why you do what you do. If you have friends in your life right now that are telling you, don't rationalize, don't justify, stop ducking, stop spiritually running away, stop hiding, sin is crouching. It is ready to pounce, and you are walking by. God says, don't rationalize, don't justify. In other words, don't rationalize why you overwork by saying, I'm just trying to be diligent, I'm just trying to be a good steward. Don't just rationalize your reliance on your looks 
Or maybe you're comparing yourself with other people's looks by saying, look, I just want to be healthy. I just want to to live a healthy life. Don't just overlook your obsession with your salary or somebody else's salary or your position or somebody else's position by saying, you know, I, I just want to fulfill my calling. There's always, usually, right, there's something more. We want to be acceptable. We want to earn our way in. Adam and Eve, in the previous passage that we looked at, they were, they were expelled from the garden. And ever since then, man has been trying to get back in. And oftentimes we look at our salaries and our positions and our titles, our acceptability before others because that represents in many ways for us our best case to make ourselves acceptable before God. We want to be acceptable. We want to earn our way back in. And these things become a currency that we use to get in. And so they become a measure of our worth. That's how it works. This is the hiddenness of sin. This is the hiddenness of sin. Sin is crouching. It's why we often get anxious when we fear losing things that define us. It's why we get angry. You know, I often see this when uh, two people break up because initially there might be an initial shock or, or a sadness, but it turns to anger. It turns to anger. Why? Because something that you love was taken away from you. And when you love something that's taken away from you, you get angry. And then after a while, that turns to hopelessness, despair, because now it's gone. You see? It's the hiddenness of sin. Well, the hiddenness of sin leads to the power of sin. That's the second point. Verse 7, God says, sin is abiding in you. If you don't deal with it, it's going to continue to grow in your life. It's going to take shape. Right now, it's just in the shadows. It's small. It's unrecognizable. But eventually, it grows, and it starts to take form. It starts to take shape. It's going to overtake you, and then it's going to corrode you, and then it's going to consume you. Right now, you're saying, well, I'm looking okay. I'm doing all right. It's because it hasn't pounced on you yet. It's because it hasn't devoured you yet. But one day, you are not an exception, is what this Bible says. There isn't a Bible written for you and then a Bible written for me. It's truth that is universal for all of us. One day, it will get us. It will overtake us, corrode us, consume us. At first, sin is crouching. It seems formless, but it's inevitable. You know, I am so... As a pastor, I make this mistake all the time because you meet people and they seem so good in the beginning. They seem so great in the beginning. And you see little clues, little hints of something that's like, hmm, that might be something, but they're such good people. You want to believe that. That's sinful too in many ways. You want to believe that because what you really should be doing, if you really love, if I'm a loving pastor, I would want to watch that. I would want to be careful. I would want to diagnose that. But we want to overlook it. It's a natural tendency of the human heart to overlook even the smallest things that are going on in our lives. We look at the big things and say, yeah, that's an issue. But the thing is those big things started from little seeds, and we have many, many seeds that have been planted in us. And the thing is, uh, what happens is, we tend to overlook these things. It's inevitable when you overlook it. You just think that your goodness will eventually, you'll, oh, they'll grow. They'll mature. Friends, they will never mature if they are not addressed. That's why parenting is so important. That's why, that's why your own self-discipline today is so important. Paul says, I beat myself every day, he says. What is he doing? He's not an ascetic. He's not saying, I'm beating myself out of my sin. He says, I am battling and fighting and dying to myself every day. 
If not, one day that sin begins to take shape and it desires to have you. It is your master and it will grow. And eventually, it's no longer just on the inside. You can't contain it. These little hints become very, very explicit. It unravels into the outside. It takes shape and it pounces and it arrests and it captures and it corrodes and devours you. Think, if you see an animal, if you see an animal and you're walking by. Now, in a zoo, even in a zoo, you're walking by and a lion crashes against the cage, you kind of jump back, right? But imagine you're walking on a road. You know, recently there was like a, a bear, right, that was loose, uh, like kind of close by, right? There was, there was reports of that. Even recently there was, a, I think, another, like a tiger, right, that went loose. Now, if you walk by with a friend, you're talking, you're having a good time, you're talking with a friend, and you see this tiger, you know, you know tigers, they're kind of like, they're ready, right? You don't go like, oh, look at that, man. He's, he's, he's about to jump on us. But you don't say that. You, you're, at some point, your legs kind of take over, right? And you, and you go. You run. You act. Why? Because you know this thing is dangerous. You know this thing can consume you. Because if you don't, you become food. You become consumed. The less you're willing to see, the less aware of the location you know of potential sins in your life, the less you're able to admit them, the more you will rationalize, the more you will justify, the more you'll be defensive about them. You will never learn from them then. You will never apply. You will never grow. You will never change. And one day, sin will stop crouching. It will pounce. It will own you. What do you do? I mean, if you see an animal in the wild crouching, pouncing, do you just talk? Do you just talk to your friend? Like, like what do we do? I see this animal. It's kind of in like, like attack mode. I definitely, we can become very descriptive about our sins. We have people here who understand and are very descriptive of the sin. It's like standing in front of this animal that's about to jump on you and eat you, and you're like, well, you see, he looks very powerful. It looks, very, it looks like it could get me. Uh, and uh, clearly, I've, the longer I wait, the more susceptible I am to this animal jumping and getting me. We are very descriptive and talking and talking about our sinfulness. Well, you know what that means? It means you don't see how dangerous it is. It means that you don't, uh, you know, you see that it's somewhat bad, but you're still self-reliant. You still don't believe. You still don't have a biblical anthropology of yourself. That's what it means. I got by, so I'll get by. You're still not trusting what God says about our sin. Not that it's just secret and hidden, but it will one day devour you. You don't believe it. If you don't just address your sin patterns as a teenager, you may survive. You let those sin patterns remain into your 20s, that damage is going to continue to grow. Now there's some damage. Uh, you may lose some relationships. You continue to let that go unaddressed into your 30s and 40s. You will lose everything. You will lose everything. Because when it takes over, it has such a grip on your life. It holds you and owns you. It becomes more and more of who you are. You become less and less of yourself. And sin dehumanizes. It corrodes. It destroys. We were not designed to have that in us. Sin wants to have you. It wants to eat you, devour you until there's nothing left of you. You'll be less and less human as you get older and older until you become completely inhuman. You see, that's what happens. It's not like Cain woke up and said, you know what? 
today I feel like I've got some time on my hands. I feel like killing my brother. That's not what he did, right? Sin begins hidden and then slowly starts to unravel and unveil itself. And we're not sure. The text doesn't show us how God showed favor to Abel. But it must have been visible to Cain. Like here's Cain giving and here's Abel giving and he sees maybe, maybe he's seeing Abel just grow and mature and burst into joy and, and maybe he sees physical blessing in his life. I don't know. We don't know that. The Bible doesn't say, the text doesn't say that. We just know whatever it was, Cain disrespected it and he felt disrespected. You see that? How do you know? Here's the clue. You see it in their names. Abel... The word Abel means worthless, while the word Cain means successful, the successful man. In other words, the word Abel means loser, and the word Cain, Cain was the firstborn, Cain means winner. But Abel understood something, and that's why he trusted, and that's why he gave, that God always has his eye on the ables of the world, the weaker people of the world, the losers of the world. And most likely, that eye that God had on Abel grew a very deep-seated envy in Cain. It's not because Cain was a loser. Cain is a winner. It's because he's a winner that there was this deep-seated entitlement, this deep-seated need to outdo, this deep-seated comparison and jealousy start to continue to grow in him because he's success. He's saying, I'm a winner. I have gifts. I've accomplished things. I have the right family. I have the right pedigree. I have the right house. I have the right wealth, the right salary, the right connections, the right theology. Why is he then getting the favor is what Cain is saying. Most likely, Cain relied on that success. And so he couldn't stand being outdone by his brother all the time, over and over and over again. Being around this loser made him feel lesser, right? Abel is valued by God. And so Cain just loses it. He just loses it because he could not understand that God always has an eye for the weaker and the loser. He always favors the loser. He always loves the unworthy the worthless. Abel was a loser, but he trusted God. He may not have had gifts. We don't know what his gifts were, but he had a relationship with God, and that relationship clearly was a priority in the way that he gave. And so he was righteous. He was approved. Cain didn't understand that everything that he had, even his gifts, If you think about it, we're all born with certain gifts, right? I mean, a lot of us rely on our looks, but the thing is, you were born that way. You didn't acquire the, well, I guess nowadays you can kind of acquire looks, right? But you were born with your looks, right? Cain didn't understand that everything that he had was by God's sheer grace, and so his world is just falling apart. It's confusing to him, and it led to murder. And this is why sin cannot be reduced to just an irrational act. 
It cannot be reduced as a misunderstanding. It cannot be reduced as an accident. And certainly cannot be the result of bad upbringing or a bad environment or, or bad education or bad culture. That does not explain that this past century, there are more deaths out of oppression and violence than the rest of the history of the world combined. Do you know that? Sin is a power that abides in us, and we need to master it. Now, how do we master it? What's our victory over sin? What do we learn about God in this text? First, verse 6, look at the gentleness of God. Notice, he doesn't accuse Cain. He doesn't pounce on Cain. He gently initiates with Cain. Cain's life is spiraling downward, and God approaches him in a very personal way, and he reasons with Cain. He says, why are you angry? God knows. He wants Cain to know. Why are you angry? And then, like a father, he says, look, basically what he's saying is, I know you. Your sin is right there, but I want you to master this. You need to master this, Cain. He's saying, I see you. I'm hurting for you. I want you to master this. The next time you're angry, I want you to take a moment and think about why you're unhappy. It's because you're not getting something that you want when you want it, how you want it, and you're angry because you worked so hard to get it. If that's the case, consider a God who is so gently trying to teach you before the sin overtakes you. He's counseling you, walking with you. Second, look at God's wisdom. Think about God asking these questions. When God is asking Cain these questions, um, he's not trying to understand you. Okay? He's trying to get you to understand yourself. He's trying to get you to see the complexity and the nuances of your heart. Verse 6, he asked Cain, literally, why? why are you so angry? The actual literal text is, why is your face fallen down? He's looking at Cain, and he's saying, I see this. It's tied to something. Why? Why are you depressed? Look at his tenderness. He doesn't say, he doesn't say you know, a lot of us, we tend to, we tend to immediately react by saying, no, but you're okay. I mean, you're lovable too. You're going to be fine. You know, oh, but you got these gifts, so don't worry. That's not what he says. Notice God doesn't say that. He once came to be aware of his sin. Look at the tenderness of God on one hand, but look at his wisdom and look at his courage. He doesn't smooth over this issue of Cain's anger. And he's counseling Cain. Verse 9, where is your brother? You don't think he knows what happened? Verse 10, what have you done? You think it's because he doesn't know what Cain has done? No. Look at his wisdom. Look at his counsel. God is very patient with us. You think you've gotten away? You haven't gotten away. God sees everything. God knows. Friends, that, what I just said there has been a deep comfort for me. You know, when I feel like I've been um, attacked in some way, I remember and I trust that God sees and God knows. But that's also... God sees. It's not that we are so innocent, right? We have sinned. We are in guilt. God sees. God knows. Cain lacked this inner sense of security and assurance in the love of God, and so he murders Abel. And look at God. He just counsels Cain, right? And he says something very amazing. Because when he's, Why is he asking these questions? Because he wants Cain to recognize it, he wants Cain to own it. That's what he wants. 
And he says something very amazing to him. He says, your brother's blood cries out to me. No one, I mean, it would have been foolish if Cain were to struck his brother down in front of other people. That's a capital offense, right? It's the first example of a capital offense committed here in the Bible, right? What God says is, I see. Abel's blood has been covered and absorbed by the ground. It has covered the ground and absorbed by the ground. I see it. All your secret hate, all your plotting, it's not just the murder, it's the conspiracy. It's the preparation. It's the, it's the hate. It's the malice. It's the jealousy. It's the disappointment in not receiving certain things. You see? It's the, it's the seedlings that he's looking. He says, all that I see, and then the violence and the injustice, all of your self-justifying, all of your hiding, I see it, I know it. I may be gentle, but I am just. I will not let it go. These, this blood is crying out to me every day, and it's by sheer grace right now that everybody, including you, you have an opportunity to turn from it. What is our only hope? The third thing is we look at the love of God. Look at his gentleness, his tenderness, look at his wisdom, look at his love. Centuries later, there was another man. He was a lot like Abel. Honored God, but he didn't just honor God, he honored God perfectly. Loved God, he didn't just love God, he loved God wholly. He worshiped God, he didn't just worship God, he worshiped God the way, not the way we worship God, eternally. Obeyed God, he didn't just obey, he obeyed God perfectly. He made offerings to God. Abel tithed. This man offered to God 100%. He tithed his body. He sacrificed his body as the firstborn. You see that? He sacrificed his body and his blood. And the author of Hebrews says, even better than Abel. Jesus Christ is the greater Cain. He's the true firstborn to whom Abel, even Abel, looked to by faith. You know what that means? All little brothers look to their older brothers at some point in their lives. All little brothers look to their older brothers. Abel looked to Cain, and he was killed as a result. He was consumed. But he trusted God. And what he looked to was a greater Cain, a greater Cain that he was willing to give as a, he would, he would give because he would receive as a provision for that greater older brother who would redeem him, whom we, we can look to. We couldn't rely on Cain to redeem us. Abel couldn't look to Cain to redeem him, so look to Christ by faith. And we have that same resource as our older brother, as our provision, except not the way Cain was. Cain was a flawed older brother, and not the way Abel was. Abel was a sacrifice, but this is a perfect sacrifice, one that we can look to as a resource in full. Jesus Christ came to a world full of Cains, people who lived religiously, people who lived right lives. They were winners. They were successful. They were leaders, and they were teachers of the law. They were Pharisees. They honored all the sacrifices. They offered all their tithes, sometimes more than they needed to. They worked very, very hard. But when they saw Jesus, it made them feel so inferior that they killed him. 
and they crucified Jesus on a cross. And when they shed his blood, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, says the author mentions that the shed blood of Jesus speaks more graciously than the blood of Abel. God sacrificed his firstborn as a tithe offering so that we could be acceptable and righteous. In other words, Jesus Christ didn't just die for our sins and the injustices. He didn't just die uh, to give us a model for forgiveness or a model for righteousness. He came to be our, he came to be us, to be our substitute, to be our substitute for the forgiveness of our sins and to make us righteous. Cain was cast out. It says at the end of this passage, Cain was cast out, but he lived. When Jesus Christ cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I am the innocent one, more innocent than Abel, more sacrificial than Abel, but I was punished and forsaken and cast out and guilty and condemned, and I died. And do you know, even as he died, he still trusted God. He was still tithing to God. Into your hands, I commit my spirit, he says. Not a hint of entitlement, not a hint of jealousy, not a hint of anger, not a hint of pride. Even as the canes of the world were tearing him apart, they crouched, they pounced on him, they tore him apart and consumed him. If you're living a life right now always trying to please God, and that plays out in lots of ways. You want to please your parents. You want to please your friends. You're constantly working to get approval from other people. You are Cain. You are Cain. And in your heart will be born a murderous person. You will never have joy. You will always be anxious. You will be depressed and angry because you never live up, and people don't live up to your expectations either. And you will not experience the embrace of God by simply his, his sheer love and his grace. Look at the cross. You know, on one hand, God doesn't just let sin go. He is just. Abel's blood cried out for justice. Jesus' blood cries out for justice as well. How are we saved? First John chapter 1, verse 9, in our word of encouragement, what does it say? God is faithful and just. On one hand, he's just. He will not make you pay twice for the same crime. So because Jesus paid the price for your sin, because Jesus on the cross paid the penalty of your sins, God is just, you are forgiven. It doesn't say God is faithful and loving or God is faithful and compassionate or God is faithful and just gracious, although God is loving and compassionate and gracious. That is not the reason why we are forgiving, forgiven. It is because he is faithful and just, and Jesus Christ paid the price the justice was executed on Christ, and his blood covers over us. We absorb his blood, and it cries out and says, it speaks more graciously. Cain's blood speaks out justice, 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 because Jesus' blood is absorbed by us. It cries out grace, 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 mercy, mercy, mercy. There's a lot more I could say, but one of the first things that you'll be able to do when you've experienced the gospel is you will be gracious. You will be able to do to Cain's what God did. Later, even Cain, 
he got protection. Even Cain got mercy in a sense. You'll be able to look to people who are like Cain and demonstrate love to them. If you're a Cain, you will be able to look to people like Abel and say, there's a greater older brother who poured out his blood for me. I don't have to execute this person in my heart, you see. You'll be able to also confront the Cains of the world with love, appeal to them, correct them, forgive them. If people are passing ahead of you, you won't be envious, you won't be bitter, you won't be jealous. To the degree that you trust the gospel, you will be able to give, you will be generous, you will embrace giving. It will fill you with joy and out of an overflow of that gratitude, you will give. If you trust the gospel, you will embrace people who surpass you. You will celebrate when they do. You will learn from them to see how they did. This is the end of jealousy. It's the end of pride. It's the end of snobbery in our lives. Friends, you know, as our church grows, we're going to see people, you know, look how tightly we've added some rows, you know, because we're trying to figure out how to uh, work with our church growing. It's a wonderful thing, but one of the downsides because of our sinfulness is that people come closer. You're sitting closer together now. You're going to get in each other's faces and in each other's lives. The Apostle Paul in Colossians, right, chapter 3 says what? Put on Christ. Put on Christ. He's not just talking about his righteousness. He's talking about the gentleness of Christ, the patience of Christ. Bear one another, he says, with forgiveness. Learn to do that. If you can do that, that is not natural. Natural is came. It is supernatural. And a community that can practice that and demonstrate that is a healthy, life-giving community because they've received the life of Christ in them. Let's practice that. Let's pray.